Welcome to The Greg Bennett Show. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And today I have one of the most delightful conversations I've had on this show with legendary ultra-endurance athlete, Rebecca Rush. In this episode, Rebecca discusses her journey and the importance of the documentary film, Blood Road, and how rather than closing a door to a part of her life, it opened her life to so much more. The thing that becomes clear in this episode is Rebecca's ability to adapt and become stronger under difficult circumstances. And this is true for her life, her career as an adventure racer and a professional mountain biker. Now, be sure to listen to this one until the end. There's just simply so many fantastic stories and takeaways from one of the world's truly great, inspiring people. Now, before we go on, Thank you for all the love, whether that be reviews on Apple Podcast, uh, social media feedback and suggestions. Just thank you so much for taking the time and, and thank you for sharing. The show is gaining traction because of you. I really hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did. Rebecca truly is an inspiration. And remember, success comes to those who endure just one moment longer. I'm so grateful for the continued support of the show from these incredible sponsors. You really do need to have these products in your life. Personally, I use each of them daily. Athletic Greens, Nutritional Beverage, Hyper Ice Recovery Tools, and the Glutathione Supplement, Continual G. What I love about Athletic Greens is its simplicity. It's delivered straight to your door and it takes seconds to mix with water. It tastes great and goes down easy. And I know I'm getting the most comprehensive nutritional beverage on the planet in one quick drink. If you're looking for one product that has as much high quality nutrients in it as possible, then you want to consider Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is more than just a multivitamin and multimineral. It takes it to the next level, adding a daily dose of superfoods, probiotics, greens blend, and more to support the gut health, energy, immunity, and stress. And right now, Athletic Greens is giving you, my audience, a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula. You'll receive one year supply of vitamin D and five travel packs for free with your first purchase for additional immune support. Many of the population are vitamin D deficient, including myself. I focus heavily in getting in the sun throughout the day, but when I can't, I religiously supplement with vitamin D. Adding vitamin D to your daily routine is just a great way to support vitamin D production. So if you're looking to get more out of your multivitamin and invest in your immunity, energy, and gut health, then you'll struggle to find anything more comprehensive than athletic greens. Take ownership of your health today and receive comprehensive nutritional insurance, a free year supply of vitamin D, and five free travel packs with your first purchase by visiting athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Now, you'll hear me mention Normatech and Hypervolt from Hyperice in several of the conversations with my guests in this show. Many of my guests and I are using these recovery tools religiously. You really must have them in your house. Sit in a pair of Normatech boots at the end of a long day. Use the Hypervolt percussion massage device to warm up muscles and loosen hot spots before working out or anytime you have a niggling injury. They're just so easy and they're so quick and they work. Their vibrating foam rollers, thermal technology and Normatech compression systems just help you warm up faster, recover quicker and simply move better. Seriously, these products are the perfect Christmas gift for any family member or good friend. Get $50 off all percussion devices now, no code needed, and get an additional 10% off with code GREG10 at hyperice.com. That's hyperice.com. 
H-Y-P-E-R-I-C-E.com and use code GREG10 for 10% off. I have a web address for all of my listeners who already know that one, the human body makes the most powerful antioxidants on earth. Two, the master antioxidant your body cells make is called glutathione and the human body needs glutathione to live. Three, the reason I'm addressing a select group of listeners with this web address is that once you see what these scientists in my hometown, Sydney, have accomplished, it'll blow your mind. Go check out continualg.com, continualg.com. That's C-O-N-T-I-N-U-A-L-G.com. Check it out and let them know that I told you about it. All right, today's guest is one of the world's greatest ultra-endurance athletes. Her career has spanned numerous adventure sports, including rock climbing, adventure racing, whitewater rafting, cross-country skiing, gravel biking, and mountain biking. And she was nominated into the International Mountain Bike Hall of Fame in 2019 and owns seven world championship titles in multiple disciplines. She's an author. Her book, Rush to Glory, Emmy Award winner for a documented cycling expedition on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, Blood Road, motivational speaker, an event promoter with Rebecca's Private Idaho. She's contributing to the greater good and giving back with her foundation, Be Good. And it's just such a tremendous privilege to have her on the show. So welcome and thank you for joining me on The Greg Bennett Show. Rebecca Rush, how are you? I'm awesome. What an amazing intro. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, you are more than welcome. It's it's such a delight. And we were just talking before I started recording that I'm such a big fan. And and it was only on LinkedIn two or three years ago when you accepted me as a friend and I and I was so excited about it. So I'm equally excited right now that you've come on to the show to have a chat with me. So thank you again. Absolutely. It's nice to talk in person instead of digitally through all these new platforms. Well, they're not new, but a new way to connect with the world. Absolutely. Where are you, where are you at the moment? I'm at home in Ketchum, Idaho. I'm looking at some snow outside. <laughs> oh, well, it's very different down here. I'm in Southern Florida right now and it's it's actually warming up again. We had a nice couple of days of coolness where it got down to, you know, in the 50s and I loved it for a moment. And now we're back up into the 70s and 80s. So oh, wow. I'm kind of missing a little bit of the coolness, but um, are, are you getting out skiing much then? Yeah, I do a lot of cross-country skiing for training and backcountry skiing and also fat biking on the snow and some winter running if the, if the trails are good. It, the nice thing about having access to all four of those things is if, the, if there's a lot of snow, I go skiing. If there's a little bit of snow, I go running and biking. And so I, I kind of make the choice of sport based on uh, what the conditions are like right now. You're truly unbelievable. <laughs> you know, doing, doing some homework for this show and obviously being a fan for some time, I, I guess my question is, do you ever just want to sit back and be comfortable? Because it seems to me... Like when I was ending my career, I started looking look for for races that were always fair weather. They weren't too hot, they weren't too cold, and I was always I was looking for comfort. Yeah. But you seem to be drawn to either the freezing cold, the hot, humid conditions, the jungles, and and everything else in between. Do you ever just want to be comfortable? Well, yes, I do want to be comfortable. I think people sometimes misinterpret my nickname is the Queen of Pain, and and people thinking that you know <laughs> I always want to torture myself. But um, so yeah, my home in Idaho is very comfortable. I was gonna go out this morning, but it was um three degrees, and I was like, oh, it's too cold. I don't want to go outside. So I pushed my work off to the afternoon, work out to the afternoon. But yeah, I mean, people love to be comfortable, but I also feel like you know the extremes you know, of, of pushing yourself really hard or being in a really challenging event, all of a sudden when you get through something super hard like that, 
your bed mm. feels more comfortable. You appreciate the food <laughs> you get to eat and sit down and eat a mm. meal. You appreciate being warm, mm. like you said. Um, and so it's almost like that uh, sort of maybe it's a bit of an alter ego, you know, that the super challenging things actually make the comfort and, and you know, just the simple life at home um, that much more cherished. Mm, I love that. It, it almost amplifies the appre- appreciation you have for for the comforts of the world. Exactly. And, and it's funny, I was talking to my, my wife, Laura, this morning, and we were talking about how to some degree life has become fairly comfortable and, and we we all seek these these challenges to to test ourselves, um, and, and and sometimes it's you know I think we become stronger when we overcome some of these stresses in life. Um, so so I get what you're saying that and, and and you mentioned three degrees for for Australians and, and everybody else <laughs> listening outside of the US. That's three degrees Fahrenheit, yes. uh, which. I can't convert that right away into Celsius, but it's really, <laughs> oh. really bloody cold. <laughs> bloody cold. That's the official, yeah, official temperature. <laughs> yeah. So how has your life changed, um, I guess, since that documentary Blood Road, which, as I mentioned in, in the intro, you know, has won the Emmy Awards and, 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 and it was such a brilliant documentary that just – it's more than just an endurance. It's more than the physical. It, it's so there's a, a deeper level emotionally, mentally, um, logistically. Uh, it's about teamwork, relationships, about seeing uh, war and, what war does 45 years later, even and the impact it has on people. But uh, did you get a tremendous amount of recognition from that? And, and did your life change after that documentary? Uh, um. Well, thank you for mentioning Blood Road. It, you know, it's the most important ride and the most important work I've done mm. in my life. I didn't, I didn't realize that was the case going in. Um, but yes, absolutely, my life has changed um, from being able to do that ride and that collaboration, um, and also to create a film and to be able to tell the story. It hasn't changed in the way that somebody might think. Oh, you're an Emmy award winning. You know, you have Emmy award winning film. Um, you know, my day to day life is, you know, is I still go to the grocery store. I still do all the same normal things. <laughs> so it didn't change in the way of like, oh my gosh, you know, um, I'm suddenly like showered in money or ex- exposure or anything like that. And I didn't really care about that. I didn't do that ride in order mm. to make a film. Um, what really changed is a very pivotal moment in my life. And I think now five years later, I'm just now, uh, seeing that that was a catalyst for some really powerful change in my life, which was finding my purpose for my riding. I can't tell you how many times people ask me why Mm. I do these endurance sports. Mm. So, you know, I found my own personal purpose. I connected with my family. I launched a foundation because of that. And I really feel like my dad brought me there and my career brought me there um, really for him to be able to teach me as a father, even though he's gone. And so my, yeah, my business has been expanding and growing and, and I'm, I'm changing because I have a real personal focus on, on what my, what I want my legacy to be, you know? Mm. So it's, can, it's can been you, a powerful experience. It's been really great actually. And, and this well, is you, one you thing. Could see, you could yeah. see that. Uh, I mean, thank you. Like when, when I got back from blood road, I, I, you know, all these people had said, you know, when I found, Oh, you found the place where your father died. That must've been amazing closure. And I can't tell you how many times people had used the word closure and they're like, Oh, great. 
you shut a door, you know, you closed a book and all along, I never understood that because that, and I understand now, but I kept saying it wasn't a closure. It was a discovery. It was an opening of me getting to know my father and me understanding myself. And now five years later, it was absolutely not a closure or an end, but, but a beginning to this really amazing phase in my career and my life. And it's, yeah, it has really changed me and the work that I do. Mm. On the Can outside, you, it might look the same. I mean, I'm still doing endurance events and, you know, still putting on my race and doing all that. But but the focus behind it is all a lot deeper. You know, I just kind of understand what I'm doing. I think I intuitively knew why I did all these rides and pushed myself like this. But I, I wasn't able to articulate what I stand for, why I'm doing it. What is the mission statement of my business, my foundation? What's my personal mission statement? Those are all things that came after Blood Road, starting with what is Rebecca's personal mission statement? What do I stand for? I, I think all of us are trying to find our purpose and our reason and our why. And, and uh, it's incredible that you had to take yourself through what you did in that in that documentary and everything that went with it uh, to actually find yourself. And, and your journey was being quite incredible to that point already. And it would almost look from an outsider that you already had a very good purpose with your life, with, with your adventure racing and, and testing yourself and, and going beyond where we thought humans could go. Um, but you tell, before we go too further on, because people, if they haven't seen Blood Road, firstly, put it on a, a, a must watch because it is an incredible film. But just give us a quick uh, insight into the film for people that haven't seen it. Yeah. I mean, the synopsis is I was, a, you know, I'm an endurance adventure athlete cyclist. And I thought, what, what ride could I do that would be you know, a really amazing adventure and hasn't been done before. And I came up with the idea to ride the entire length of the Ho Chi Minh Trail through Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia, and ultimately to, to do the ride, um, but to look for the place where my father's plane went down in 1972. He was a, a pilot in the Vietnam War and he didn't come home. And so I had these map coordinates and the idea to do this bike expedition and, um, it took years actually to, to make it happen. And, and Red Bull was my main partner in that. And, you know, they're like, yes, we'll help you do this logistically. And, you know, we'll see what we can film. And that ended up being a documentary length film of, you know, my journey on the trail. I rode with the Vietnamese cyclists. And so, mm -hmm. you know, it's a lot more than a cycling film. It goes quite deep into, you know, the war and the war history and the bombs that are still left there, but also personal relationships and healing and understanding somebody who was on the other side of a, a conflict. Um, so it was really quite an incredible ride and amazing riding through the jungle and doing the Ho Chi Minh Trail and, and one of the hardest uh, sort of most um, ambitious physical expeditions of my life but honestly the physical journey was was not the hard part um it was really the mm -hmm. emotional journey that was new to me i'm not as i was not as trained for that kind of uh, introspection and actually telling a story on film too and having to verbalize and share what is typically you know uh, endurance athletes we're in our heads a lot and we spend a lot of time just mm -hmm. talking to ourselves and so that was quite a challenge to be open um and just pretty raw in that film and just, uh, take people on that journey with me, but it's been, it's been an amazing gift. And so thanks for watching it and mentioning it. 
No, it's it's funny you mentioned about being sort of vulnerable and authentic and, and allowing yourself because I think you're right. I think as endurance athletes, we we become very good at becoming insular and living in our own world and we become very good at managing our emotions and other people's expectations and our own expectations. And so we almost become this, we live in this sort of neutral zone. But you could see in that film and the way you speak now that it was kind of like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to shake Rebecca until she lets loose a little bit and we're going to see a little <laughs> bit deeper vulnerability. And, and that, that I can imagine being, you know, an ultra endurance athlete like you are, that that must have really been the hardest part of the entire process. Because um, I feel it. I, I'd be the same. I, I, I kind of get where you're coming from on that. You know? Well, it's a good point uh, because, yeah, we as athletes, especially endurance athletes, we fortify ourselves and we're strengthening ourselves and we're building up reserves and resilience. We're putting down the, you know, um, sort of pain synapses that are happening in our brain. We're ignoring those. And so we build quite a few layers of defense. I mean, all humans do it, not just endurance athletes. And mm. so when people ask me, you know, why did you have to ride 1200 miles to go to this spot on a map? Why didn't you just go there directly? <laughs> and the reason is what you're touching on exactly is that I needed to be physically tired and strip away all of those defense layers. And I needed to to go there in my way so that I could accept whatever was going to be waiting for me in those crash coordinates. If I went there just Rebecca as is, and I wasn't physically exhausted, um, I would have still had up all those emotional barriers. So mm -hmm. the only way I know how to access my internal self, and this gets onto why I do all this stuff is really when I strip away all those defense layers and I'm physically tired, I, there's, I have better access to my mind um, and my emotion and my heart and my soul. Wow. Uh, that, that's brilliant. It's funny. My wife and I would say to each other when we're both physically exhausted, maybe go take a nap because we're not that much fun to be around. So <laughs> for, you, for you, you, you like it the other way. I, I kind of feel like sometimes when I get physically, physically exhausted, we see a person that probably we'd, we should probably put walls up around. <laughs> I think it's if but you're I do. physically exhausted and you're hungry, that's the worst combination. <laughs> but if you're just physically exhausted and you've had enough to eat, then we're usually, you know, a really raw version of ourselves but we're not hopefully not mean to yeah. other people if you've had a snack you know yeah i like that that's brilliant though and i i kind of feel like you know we, we talk about yourself being in this ultra endurance adventure world and and i kind of always feel like it's you know being a triathlete myself it was the ultra endurance adventure world that you're in is almost like the sibling to triathlon i feel like we're all in the same realm but we're just sort of approaching it from from different avenues and um and it's interesting i have uh, one friend i think that you know very well um a guy by the name of novak thompson um, oh yeah novak and i raced together for 10 years he was a uh, he's the mm -hmm. navigator and yeah, i was the captain of our team so we were we we're a dynamic duo yeah he's a great guy yeah, we uh, he started off in triathlon. Actually, I raced yeah. him when we were juniors, and he, he was phenomenal. And I think he got bored with triathlon. I think he needed more. And uh, but now he lives in the same little town that we live in in Noosa, Australia. And um, uh, but but I did reach out to him on Facebook before we we mentioned this, and he said to say hi. So oh, cool. Yes, you yeah. guys were on. Yeah, for many years there, you did the raid gula. Some of those, which I mean, while we're touching on some of those, what. Those extreme adventure races, was there one that stands out that you're like, that was just insanity? Oh, yeah. I mean, the raid Goa in Tibet and Nepal was 
was a pretty impactful one. Um, Novak and I, we raced together in, in Vietnam, um, in the raid. And that's the, that was 20, uh, what was it? 2009, maybe, um, in Vietnam, but that was the first year that I had ever been to Vietnam. It's the first time I really, the sort of seed of an idea of riding blood road, you know, 10 years earlier, you know, I had this seed, um, I, I, I don't remember what year it was, but the being in Vietnam for the first time, my mom came over and met me after, after our race there. And we finished fourth, we had a really strong race, but that was the first time I thought about, is this what the, you know, is this what the jungle was like for all of the people serving mm-hmm. and, um, fighting and, you know, getting foot rod and trench foot and thinking about some of these things, is this what my dad went through? And so my mom came over after the race and we actually took a tour around and we went to, um, the place where my dad was stationed in Da Nang. We went to China beach where he had spent his R and R and written letters home. And that was the first time my mom and I talked about my dad, um, and that there was a real memory coming up. And I remember our, our guide sort of pointed across over to Laos and he's like, see those Hills over there. That's the Ho Chi Minh trail. And, and I took a photo. I distinctly remember this moment. I took a photo and I looked across the hills and I just thought, you know, I wonder what that trail is like. I would like to go there someday. And this was long before Mm -hmm. I was a professional cyclist or, you know, had any of this idea of riding the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And I I remember that distinct moment was when I was like, that was where the seed was planted. And I didn't remember that until far into the process of Blood Road and looking, you know, down my sort of my history. And, and I remembered that race in Vietnam with Novak and, and that it was really impactful for me. And the first time I really started thinking about my dad. That's amazing. Isn't it? How, how the dots all connect and, you know, suddenly you're going down a a path that you, you maybe hadn't planned or foreseen until it was that, that trip. And, uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, that, the Ho Chi Minh trail, it's not exactly a trail, is it? I mean, it, it, no, (laughs) It, it seems like a, a thousand little arms that all go everywhere and you're trying to find the best way through the jungle, but there's some form of trail. Is that what it's like? Yeah, you, you're kind of spot on. It was a, The Ho Chi Minh Trail was not one trail. It was really a network of trails that went north from Hanoi in Vietnam, crossed over into Laos um, and Cambodia, and then came back into Vietnam in the south near Ho Chi Minh City or Saigon at the time. And so it was this braided network that was used to move supplies and people and ammunition down towards the south um, to take over the south. And so it was purposefully Mm -hmm. hidden even when it was in use. And there were lots of little arms, you're exactly right. And so what we did was really put together the most historically accurate connect the dots that we could. And we found somebody in country, Don Duval, who he's been uh, riding his motorcycle over there for 13 years and actually GPS mapping the country. A lot of Laos was not actually mapped if it weren't for Don Duval. And so we found this guy mm-hmm. over there who who had all this Ho Chi Minh Trail knowledge and had been riding his motorcycle all over there. And he really helped us put together the route um, that was historically accurate. And, you know, there's still some places are overgrown jungle and there's nothing there. Some places are paved highways. 
um, in, you know, near the big cities and the trail is really gone. And then other places you still see actual cobblestones that were hand laid and, you, you know, there's tanks and remnants and bombs, of course, still left all along, all along actual historical sections of the trail that are still there. So it's a mix wow. of everything. It, I know. I mean, I mean, do you have a love for being in the jungle or is that something that you, is the, is the jungle a discomfort to you like it is the rest of us? Or did you actually find yourself where you're able to embrace that a bit? You know, it would have been great if it was, you know, 60 degrees and sunny every day and if you could pick <laughs> the perfect temperature and, you know, for these expeditions. But no, I wouldn't say I have a love of the jungle. I, when we were adventure racing, some of the most difficult terrain is is the jungle because it's so wet. It's so hard to navigate through. Um, you might think, oh, but you're warm. At least you're not freezing cold. But you end up getting different problems um, like skin irritations and, you know, leeches and all sorts of other other stuff and finding your way through the jungle is yeah it's it's overgrown it's quite difficult um so you know i like all different kinds of climates i mean i where i live in idaho is is mountain terrain and that's probably my favorite but you know Mm. um the jungle has its own very special kinds of challenges and i'm glad i had all that adventure racing experience because really you know I was trained for all different kinds of terrain and the navigation. And so a lot of the skills that I developed as an adventure racer have really come full circle in my cycling now and, you know, doing bike expeditions and using a map and compass all the time and sort of the endurance things that I learned adventure racing, even though it's single sport now, you know, cycling, Mm -hmm. um, I'm still carrying my bike and crossing rivers and doing a lot of the stuff that Novak and I did as teammates together. (laughs) Well, I, let's wind the clock back then, because this is this is fascinating. Let, let's start. When did your passion for this kind of endurance adventure life begin? Um, I'd say my passion for the outdoors began uh, in a small suburb in Downers Grove, Illinois, outside of Chicago. Um, you know, we're suburban family growing up with a single mom, obviously me and my sister. And I was always the kid that was playing in the dirt in the backyard and, you know, digging things. I was asking my mom if I could camp out, you know, put the tent up and camp in the backyard. Um, so even as a little kid, I was really gravitating towards the outside, being outside. I didn't mind being dirty. Um, and I wanted to be outside. And so I think that Mm. began at a really young age. The I didn't get into sports until high school running. Um, I joined the cross country and track team and no joke. I wasn't an athlete. There wasn't an athlete influence in my family, but my next door neighbor said, if I um, join the cross country running team, I get a free track suit and I would never get fat. <laughs> and so I was like, Oh, those two things sound pretty good as a young girl, you know, body image issues. I was like, I won't get fat and I get a sweet track suit. So that was how I found running, um, (laughs) as a sport. But what I really found was I really, I enjoyed pushing, pushing myself physically. I found a community of friends, you know, that I fit in with. And Mm. as we know, in high school, you're, you're trying to fit in, you're trying to find your people. Um, and that Mm -hmm. cross country running became that for me. And, and, it quickly became apparent that the longer the event was, the better I was, you know, I wanted to do, 
I wanted to be a sprinter and do hurdles because they just seemed really cool and they didn't have to go as far in their training workouts. And I'm like, I want to do the shorter stuff and the jumping over things, but I wasn't any good at those things. And so the coach kept putting me in the two mile and the three miles like, yeah, but that's harder. Um, but you know, physically I just was better at those. And so I think that was kind of self-selected. Um, and as the years went on, I found that, you know, being on the trail and doing long distance stuff, not only was I, I physically built for it, um, mentally, like I said, I just really liked sort of this kind of vision quest type of a thing where, you know, really is a bit of a therapy for me to go do something really long and access a different part Mm -hmm. of your brain and your mind that you weren't really thinking about, um, at the beginning of the trail. And was there a point where in all of that then that you, I mean, you recognize that you could go longer. Was there a point that you're like, hang on, like one, was there one moment where this is a talent, this is a strength of mine and maybe I should go all in and as a career? Because I mean, you, you've had quite the career in the endurance world. Was there one particular moment that you were like, hang on, I'm actually reasonably good at this. You know, I, <laughs> thank you for saying that. Um, I, you know, I really, I just kept in accepting invitations to do things. You know, um, I was managing a rock climbing gym in California after college and a bunch of adventure racers came in kind of the, you know, the sort of royalties guy, Ian Adamson and Kathy Sasson and, um, all these people I didn't know, but they needed to learn, um, some climbing skills and I was running climbing gyms. So that's where I got introduced to adventure racing. Um, and really it was just like, oh, these people need a girl, on their team because the, the way adventure racing was that you had to be co-ed. And so most teams were three men, one woman. So honestly, I, I feel like I sort of stumbled into the, this sport of adventure racing and a career of it. And eventually, you know, I just started getting invited, um, because there weren't a lot of women doing it. I kept getting invited on different races and, and different things. And, Um, really, I just kind of like the first year eco challenge, the first race I did, we won, you know, we won the race. We didn't know what we were doing. It was a 24 hour race in California. And the prize was, um, was an entry to eco challenge Australia. And it was like, wow, I'll get a free trip. Cool. So really, honestly, I went on that thinking, oh, I'll get a trip to Australia and then I'll come home and, you know, get back to working. But that really led to more and more invitations and more and more races. So it really was this one by one add on of like, oh, do you want to go do this? Okay, sure. Why not? Oh, do you want to go do this? Okay, Mm -hmm. sure. Why not? And then suddenly it was, you know, getting invited. Suddenly it was like, I think I could just, I'm going to, I like this adventure racing thing. Maybe I'll just start my own team because I, I was tired of waiting around for invitations to go to these cool races. So that's when I started a team. I started getting sponsors. I started, um, you know, I leveraged a bit of, you know, my climbing contacts from the climbing gym and I was still working full time there, but I started my own team. Um, and it started to take off and that's where I was like, you know what, if I want to go travel and do all this stuff. And initially like that kid in the backyard, it was the travel that was appealing to me of going all these cool places, but eventually it became, you know, 12 years of really an amazing team dynamic, being a team captain and like getting our sponsorship and learning all the leadership of having to do all that and organize our plane tickets. So I I really got a lesson in, um, kind of management 
And mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. pretty cool. And honestly, I just feel like one thing led to the other other and you know this adventure racing and then doing all this other stuff and then oh that turned into 24-hour bike racing um and that seemed pretty good so (laughs) you know i i'll go back to your question of was there a moment when i thought you know oh i might have some talent for this um it was probably that you know around that time of 2003 that race in vietnam with novak with our team you know we were winning the race and um we ended up finishing fourth in you know international you know world caliber field um but we were winning the race and there were there were a couple moments in there where i actually had to carry the backpack for my really big strapping strong teammate um john jacoby who you might know he puts on races mm-hmm. in australia as well you know, John is so strong and he was having a down period. And, and so I ended up carrying his backpack for a while. Um, and that was where I was like, we really are equals. And every, what I would see every time is day one, two, three, I'm hanging on for dear life. Um, then day three through however long it was, I felt like I got stronger or I stayed the same, you know, and oftentimes, um, other people were, were deteriorating and, and just, kind of hanging on towards the end. So that cycle kept repeating itself in adventure racing. And so then it was like, yeah, I am stronger the longer it goes. Um, and it, it just sort of kept reinforcing itself, which is why I gravitate to, to, you know, the long distance events, same as, you know, just like we said in high school, you know, when I gravitated to all this travel and these expeditions, because I love to explore, externally. Um, but then I also stayed with them because I love to explore internally and this kind of Mm -hmm. expedition riding now, um, fuels, fuels both those things. I, I, in doing some homework for this, I did dig up a a quote that I saw that Novak said, um, about you. And it says, she's developed a reputation as a goat like tracker, (laughs) a superb paddler, a climber, a perpetually organized, supportive, and good humored teammate. I thought that was a really great rap when you're talking adventure racing. I thought it was, I mean, that, that quotes obviously a little while ago when you guys were preparing, I think, for, for, for a big event. But when I read that, I was like, I, I've got to make sure I, I share it with you because I think that encompasses basically everything <laughs> in that one quote. It, it's kind of this, you, you're, like you mentioned, you, you're, you're a great manager. You, you, you're going to carry the packs when someone like a John Jacoby can't do it. You, you're going to be able, you can do all the, the things that you need to in terms of paddling and climbing and tracking and all of those kinds of things. And you bring the humor as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was just a really, really great quote. That's so, really um, flattering. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think with anything in life, you've got to have the skill set and the learning, but then you've got to have the right temperament and personality to work with people. And, you know, adventure mm-hmm. racing is not unique in that way. It was a great lesson in how to collaborate, you know, how to do things together when you're scared and hungry and tired and lost. Um, and then ultimately celebrating at a finish line is, it's quite rewarding when there's other people there who were, who were part of the team that made it happen. It's funny you talk about the finishing line just then. You mentioned the finish line. I had a friend of mine. I don't think you know. He might have been done before you started. His name was Tim Smallwood, a very, oh, yeah. very good mate. Yeah, yeah, I know Tim. <laughs> Did you know Tim? Oh, yeah. well, fantastic. Well, he's living down in Tasmania now. And uh, and I said to him after he'd done one in Morocco, I think. Mm-hmm. Was it a Eco Challenge or yeah. a Raid Gula in, in Morocco? Anyway, and I, I said to him, when, you, when you're done, you just must feel like sleeping for days. And he said, actually, Greg, 
because we've been going for five, like three to seven days, whatever distance it is, and we're always having these quick little naps, he said, you don't sleep very well when you get to the end because you, you're just so used to waking up and going, go, I got to go, I got to go. Mm-hmm. Is that the same for you? Was it that you, you struggle to actually sleep when you've done these huge events? Yeah, you've actually sort of altered your body rhythm and you've, you know, really told it you're going to keep going. And, and so it does get into that rhythm. Um, so yeah, a two hour nap will suddenly seem like a lot of sleep. And then you think, oh, I'm going to sleep for 10 hours. And really your body and your mind is just twitchy because it does take a while to synchronize, I guess, back to a normal, a normal everyday life. I know it's, it's borderline pretty unhealthy. If we think about it, (laughs) what what you guys do in some of those incredible multi-day endurance events and, uh, and even the 24 hour mountain biking, I assume when you, when you finish that, uh, what's that like for you? Um, that's pretty similar to a long adventure race. I mean, 24 hours isn't that long to stay awake, but when you think about your um, physically exerting yourself as hard as you can for 24 hours, um, yeah, it's 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 a bit of a transition period, I'd say, after any big expedition like that. But um, mm-hmm. it does take a while for your body and your mind to shut down, and. Um, but I'll tell you, there's nothing better than riding all night and then the sun is coming up and you're like, I've been going 22 mm-hmm. hours. Oh my gosh. And then you see the sunrise and it's pretty special. It's, it's like, you don't access all, you can't always see this, you know, we're a lot of times sleeping when the sun is rising. And I, I always think that in these multi-day events, like I should see the sunrise more, like I should get up earlier and see the sunrise more Mm -hmm. Um, because it is pretty special. We start a new day. We're still here. We get to do something amazing. Um, So that is one of my favorite parts about multi-day events is, is seeing sunrise every day. I love that. I want to, I want to discuss some of your, your team and, and some of the relationships because any champion athlete like yourself or, and everything you've, you've, you've done in your life to date is just incredible. You, you can't have done it all on your own. Who are some of the people that have been on the journey with you, you know, throughout all of these advance, adventures and things that you've been up to? Um, well, I'll, I'll definitely say mom was sort of number one fan and, and she actually used to like type up race reports for me and she'd be at every event. And so really she was the the number one who, you know, as a mom, Mm -hmm. when I'm like, I'm going to quit my job, I'm going to move into my car and I'm going to like be an adventure racer, (laughs) you know? Um, and she was supportive of that. She, she never said, why are you doing that? Or, you know, this isn't going to work or get a real job. Um, so definitely she's been, she's been there all along. Um, she's even traveled internationally. She went to that Vietnam race and, and kind of bopped around and tried to watch us as best she could. Um, but yeah, mom and, and really for setting example as a single mom and she worked in the computer industry and raised two children on her own. Um, she really set an example for me of commitment and hard work and, you know, being a leader, um, so she's been pretty integral. Mm. My husband's been a really fun adventure teammate. We've been together well, 15 years or so. And he, he really got me into cycling and, you know, my first 24 hour race and was a guy who's like, you know what? I, I think you might be really good at this. And as I was transitioning from adventure racing, you know, and figuring out what am I going to do next? He's the one that got me, uh, tuned into 24 hour mountain bike racing, which was a whole second launched a whole second part of my career. Um, and, 
really got me into cycling. So I have to thank him for that. Um, there's been tons of sponsors and mentors along the way, um, who obviously, you know, as a professional athlete, um, you know, it doesn't always pay that well. Mm. <laughs> and so you need mm. sponsors mm. and you need partners. And my longest running partner, um, since the rock climbing days, the rock climbing gym I managed was actually right down the road from Red Bull in Santa Monica. And Red Bull's been my longest running partner, um, over 20 years now with them as an wow. athlete. And that's been a really special relationship. And even through the transition from adventure racing and me not knowing what I was going to do. And they're like, well, you know, just figure something out. And, and, they really, as a partner, have really uh, shaped me as as uh, as an athlete and as a business owner. They've really provided a lot of tools. Instead of just a paycheck, it's like, you know, they provide a lot of tools for me to do a film like Blood Road, to do projects, to be creative. I mean, the end of each year, the athlete manager is like, okay, what do you want to do next year? And and let's figure this out together. So instead of telling me what to do, there was always this ask of like, what cool, crazy ideas do you have? And that really mm. pushed me to develop my own brand and take my career in the direction that I wanted to take it, um, which I feel really lucky to have been able to kind of craft how I wanted my career in sport to go. And even through the changing sports and different things um, and even different types of cycling, Red Bull's been supportive all the way along because they're like, that's cool. Okay, you want to do that? Go for it. <laughs> so yeah, wow. yeah, they've been amazing. And Blood Road wouldn't have happened for them. But I will tell you, I pitched Blood Road as a project idea and it got declined twice, pitched it to them twice, got declined twice, but they sent me back <laughs> to the drawing board. And I really thought about why did I want to do this ride? What was it about? Um, what was important to me and the pitch, you know, from pitch one to pitch three over the three years of trying to get that project greenlit. Um, it, they really did force me to evolve why I was going and to articulate why this was an important ride. And so I'm glad it got denied the first couple of times because it actually got better and better. And, and I wouldn't have been ready for the ride as an athlete or emotionally ready if it had gotten accepted in that first year that I pitched it. Interesting. So that was kind of a pitch where you were probably showing, look, I, it's a physical journey mm -hmm. and they, they wanted the, they wanted the story. They wanted the emotional journey yeah. as much as anything. And, and I've heard so many great things about Red Bull and their, their loyalty, their support and the way they work with their athletes. I've heard things like, you know, when you sign a contract with them, they, they fly you to, to Austria or depending on where you are, they do all the medical testing and make sure you're, they invest heavily in the people that they sponsor. They want the best for the people that they work with. And, you know, a friend of mine, Mark Weber, who's been on the show, who drive used mm -hmm. to drive Formula One for Red Bull. And, uh, you know, and, and he's still with Red Bull. You know, he's been retired from racing for many years, but they still want to work with their their people that, that they've invested in for many years and they just want to keep working with people. And, and it's it always seems to me when I look back at my career, and I did have an option to go with Red Bull actually back in 2000 and was very early on 2002 um as a as a young sort of athlete trying to find my way i think that the contract was very small i was like oh no and and in hindsight it, it might have been a very good one to to go with because i think they do work with their athletes very well i seem i seem to think a, a lot of the athletes all their social media platforms and everything seems to be a little bit more professional with the athletes that are working with red bull um 
I don't know. I think they provide all the media training. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think they provide some media training. They they really help you all become more professional. So they that, that's fantastic. Us, yeah, um, they support us however we need, which is pretty great. You're right. They build the asset. They give you tools, you know, to do your job better, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> so mm. I think that was a mistake for you not to mm. go with him. But that, but look where you are now. <laughs> <laughs> Running yeah, an amazing it's okay. podcast. It's okay, Greg. You could have been so much better. You could have been so much better, but that's okay. <laughs> Look who you are now. Oh, dear. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> A quick mini break. I really want to encourage you to do something special for yourself and sign up to Athletic Greens and get a free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase by visiting athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Hyperize now have a great holiday sale. $50 off Hypervolt and Hypervolt Plus, $400 off all normal tech packages, 20% off all other Hyperize tech, and the brand new Hypervolt Go is now available for $199. It's smaller and it's more portable. Hyperize.com, that's hyperize.com, H-Y-P-E-R-I-C-E.com. Let's move on to, uh, I am curious to delve a little bit more into that gray matter of yours and the, the mental approach that you have to some of these incredible journeys. Um, obviously, Blood Road, the adventure races we've talked about and the 24-hour mountain bike, there has to be some pretty dark times in all of those. Um, how how are you managing that when when you hit those those really hard times? Do you have techniques that you're using to try and get yourself going? Yeah, I mean, I think this year is a, you know, we all, let, let's just be blunt. We all go through really hard times. And I do feel mm-hmm. like my practice as an athlete um, really helps me in everyday life in sort of dark times and, you know, being lost and cold and lonely in the woods and, and kind of figuring it out. It sounds quite cliche, but but there are a lot of the same tactics that I use or mindset that I use you know, during this year or or during, during trying times at home, um, such as, Mm -hmm. you know, reaching out to friends for support. So if I just put a sports spin on it when I don't want to do my training or, you know, I, I just don't feel like it's too hard. I mean, it's a reason I have a coach and it's the reason why I have training partners is, is they hold me accountable when I can't hold myself Mm -hmm. accountable. So I think forming a little community like that, um, to sort of, be your training buddies in life or your training buddies in training, I think that's pretty important. And I do a lot of my stuff alone. Um, but when I do need that accountability, um, there's a small handful of people that are always going to be there, including, including my coach. And so that's a, a really big part of me, of me, uh, sort of keep doing, to keep doing the work. And then I, some of the other tools that I use mentally when, when things are really hard, um, you know, I have used this tactic for a while since high school. Um, the assistant high school running coach kind of um, the day before the state meet, I'd, I'd had a really bad race before. And anyway, he introduced me to um, the concept of a mantra that you say in your head when you're running. And and I remember the night before he told me, you know, I was all full of negative talk about why, you know, I was going to have a terrible race. And he said, all I want you to do is just go run. And all I want you to say the whole time you're running to yourself in your head is I can, I will, I won't be denied. 
And I remember those words. And so I just did it. I ran the race. I can, I will, I won't be denied. And I didn't really understand what was happening. I thought it was stupid. Um, I finished all state. I had a great race and we talked about it afterwards. And he said, your, your brain can only fit one thought at a time. And so I was having you fill it with a positive thought instead of a negative one. And I've really used sort of self-talk even when I don't believe it, you know, and I speak to myself, you know, Rebecca, come on, you can do this. Mm-hmm. Um, I speak to myself that way because the voice that the words that we use on ourselves, we often wouldn't even use on a stranger or let alone a friend who was suffering next to you. You know, would you say, you suck, you're terrible, you should find another sport. What are you even doing out here? But you would never say that, but yet we, we say it to ourselves. And so, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's still, it's, it's nothing new, but it's, it's a mantra, a mantra filling your, your head with, with positive thoughts instead of negative ones and talking to yourself nicely. Um, that's really one that I use a lot and I have to keep learning it. You know, it's been decades that I've been using that kind of a mantra. And ultimately, you know, one of my main mantras and, you know, when I came home and wrote my own personal mission statement, um, the words be good, which is how my dad signed all his letters home from the Vietnam war with the words be good. And so that's the one I fall to if I really, you know, it's on my top tube on my stem says be good. I've got a little, um, stem cap. Um, but ultimately, yeah, it's be good. And that's either be good to myself, be good to whoever's around me, um, be kind to myself, um, be a best version of myself. There's a lot of ways that that can be taken. So I think personal mantras are pretty important. If you do ride a bike, Mm. it's easy to write them on your top tube and tape them on there. You probably did that as a triathlete taped words. (laughs) <laughs> on, on my, your my, my, mine were always stuck in my head all the yeah. time like you I, I practiced them all the time yeah. it's like one I always used was strong you're strong you're capable you're powerful nice. and 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 that you know even when I go to the gym now if I'm sitting at the seated row and I'm about to try and lift a heavy weight it's kind of like okay you're yeah. strong you're capable you can actually do this and you're powerful and it's amazing just doing that how suddenly you can change and you feel those things. You actually feel those things even when a moment before you were like, oh, I feel tired, I feel rubbish, I suck, uh, you know, <laughs> which we all we all do. But it's nice to have these quick mantras, these quick things, these affirmations that can just click us out of it as quickly as possible. And I think you, the more you practice those things, the better you get at just grabbing hold of them quickly. That's how I find it. Yeah. And I mean, interesting right now is all of these ancient techniques like visualization or mantras, you know, they're, Mm. they're not new, but what is happening now is science is actually proving what happens in Mm. your brain when you use positive talk, what happens in your brain and your body scientifically when you take a deep breath and breathe and relax, you know, it affects your, your nervous system. And so what is so cool right now is these these ancient techniques and practices are now backed by science and so more people are mm-hmm. embracing things like meditation and breath work and it, because they're like oh well the science says it works even though the buddhists have said it's worked for 2000 years um i think now mm-hmm. that stuff's becoming mainstream because it's it's backed by science and you can you know what's going on in your brain when you take a deep breath 
It's actually mm. really cool. <laughs> it's a, a it exciting really moment cool. in our world because people that now are finding that they have their own medicine. We have our own medicine with breath, with relaxation, with mindfulness, with sound therapy, with vibration, that we can actually heal ourselves in a lot of ways. And I think athletes intuitively have known this because we're taking care of ourselves on the trail when they're, we're physically, you know, asking a lot of our bodies. We learn breath work. We learn focus. We learn a lot of those things. Not everyone has learned that if you're not an ultra endurance athlete, and then many athletes didn't really realize what they were doing. And that kind of hit me after blood road. I didn't really realize, but I've been doing a form of, you know, moving meditation for decades in endurance Mm -hmm. sports, but I didn't really know it. And that was one big Mm -hmm. transition that came from post-blood road is journaling, starting to meditate, starting to get into some of those practices that I intuitively have done an athlete, but bring them into my everyday life. And that's been Mm. really kind of a nice um, sort of collision of, of understanding. Mm That's also well put because I've mentioned on this show before that there, there's a lot of new self-help books and all sorts of things out there that are sort of describing things as new, um, but really they're just adding the science behind, well, the Bible or the Buddha or whatever that's been written for 2,000 years, some of the greatest books ever written. Um, they're, they're in there. They're not easy to read, by the way. When everybody says the Bible is the greatest book ever written, I, I find it quite hard to actually read, but I'm not <laughs> saying there's not some useful information in there. Um, but it is interesting even when, when, when we talk about prayer and it's about being thankful. Well, now we talk about being grateful or, right. or you know, grateful is whatever the words are, one's a action, one's a, <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. But it is, we're kind, of, we're kind of, you know, for me, I've become a big advocate this last 12 months of, on being grateful and being present, right? I mean, they're the two things that we can really have control over when we start to get a bit negative or we start to, you know, the noise is getting too loud. It's like, let's reduce the noise. Let's have, be grateful for what we have and um, and be present. And, and, and that's been a great a great lesson for all of us. I think this last 12 months with the lockdowns and everything has forced us to be present amongst family and close friends, or, you know, if we're allowed to have close friends, depending on the world where we are, but it's, it, it really has been an interesting year to practice a few other tools in our tool belt that we maybe realize, you know, we didn't realize we had. Um, so it's been fascinating, but I, I also particularly really like your community um and having accountability partners i couldn't agree more training partners uh coaches uh loved ones that are there to support you because you do get tired physically mentally emotionally and it's it's fantastic when when you have them to pick you up um i i want to move on to a little bit of your general health because in my research here and novak mentioned to me a while ago that he had several very deadly diseases and hospitalizations and all sorts of things that he happened from these, you know, crazy adventure races. How are you kind of, have you had those kind of experiences and how are you managing your general health when that happens? Um, I've been pretty good. And I might say Novak got all that sickness and illness and all that. Cause he was a triathlete, you know, he was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he was like a, a pretty boy taken care of and somebody's cleaning his, you know, his chamois for him. 
but I was living in the dirt, even as a kid, I was a dirty rock climber, you know, and like dirt bag living out of my car. And so I probably didn't get sick because I ate a lot more dirt and I wasn't as clean as, as a child. That's awesome. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think I read one of his was because it was something to do with, you guys had to track through a cave for 24 hours. Yeah. He got and he, he might've got, yeah. From the bats. Mm-hmm. Well, from the bats. Well, Wano, that, well, really. The bat feces is what got all these people in the race sick. <laughs> but it didn't get you sick. You could handle it. I guess so. I guess so. I'll, I'm, I am a survivor. But yeah, I've been lucky. I haven't broken a bone, knock on wood. I haven't had a lot of illnesses. Um, you know, I've gotten a few parasites here and there from some of the international travel, but I, I've been pretty durable. Um, wow. and I don't know why I think I, I, th- I think just injury wise, because I do a lot of different sports, I think that, and, you know, haven't always just been a runner or just a cyclist. I think that has helped me be a bit more durable. And even now with cycling as a focus, I do a fair amount of time cross country skiing and running and other things, because I feel like it, it does help you have longevity as an athlete to, to mix it up a bit. But no, I've been pretty, mm-hmm. my body has, has has served me well. <laughs> I love that. You, I love that you just called Novak a pretty boy. I think. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to. That <laughs> he's a builder by trade, and, and he's probably one of the most manly men I know. He so is. the fact that he's a pretty boy, I don't know what that makes me. <laughs> you know, that you said something pretty. I really love that I want to get back to. That has been awesome. Is you said this year? You know, in these twelve months of really trying times, is you've learned to. You know we've all learned a lot of us to control the things we can control because so much has been out of our control this year and you do feel lost, but you can control your sleep. You can control, you know, how you respond to things. You can control your attitude towards things. You control the fact that you're hopefully staying physically active. These are things that, that people are finding in these last 12 months that I think is really awesome that we are finding. We, control the things you can, and that's going to suddenly make the things you can't control, you're going to be able to deal with them a little bit better. And, and I think on that, I think we're all far more resilient than mm-hmm. we we give ourselves credit for, or that the media might portray us. I think we're all far more resilient. I think we, you know, we, we can con- take control, like you said, of our metabolic health and, you know, and all those bits and pieces. Is there any, when you... Are you working on any kind of different forms of grounding or for you, because you're in nature the whole time, I guess you're always feeling, you know, and I I feel like a lot of us are living in that kind of fight or flight type world, but, and I think we need to try and ground ourselves more. Are you doing anything in particular on that or is just getting outside in nature what you do? Um, Yes to both those questions. I mean, I, I, I am really grateful that I can be outside every single day and I will tell you if I do nothing, you know, I have to walk my dogs each day and they make me go outside and just walk and look at the river. And so they're very grounding. And I think it's because, you know, we go walk and we look around. I don't take my cell phone. Um, and it's just being quiet and putting my feet on the earth, um, two times a day (laughs) because of my dogs. So, so that is something that, um, you know, I I really cherish as important mental time for me. Um, and you know, I have, as I mentioned earlier, I've gotten more into, you know, simple meditation, um, some breathing exercises. 
I've taken some really cool classes um, on vibrational therapy um, with crystal bowls and just the vibration of, of bowls that are tuned to different um, frequencies. And it's actually really interesting. And this was one of the science things I was talking about before, you know, everything is vibrating in our world on a frequency. Even the desk you're sitting at is vibrating on a frequency. And we all know when someone comes into a room with negative energy, that's a frequency everybody picks up on, um, or positive energy. It's what draws people to each other. And so this vibrational sound work that I've been dabbling in a little bit is actually a really interesting way to, um, when you are sort of spinning out of control to get your vibration sort of back to grounding and in a way of like connecting with the earth, which is also a certain vibration. And that's why people do ground or put your hands on the ground or feet on the ground or go for a walk. It doesn't have to be, a big thing, but, um, anyone who can go outside every day and, and put your hands and feet on the ground and touch the dirt. Um, it is, it is really, uh, does help you feel connected with the earth. Cause we are, we are connected. Um, but we forget that, especially when you're buzzing around. And if you live in a city, um, you know, even New York, you can still, it's why people go to central park because it works your, your mental mm -hmm. health and wellness, your brain does respond to nature, to colors, to certain sound vibrations. It's why people listen to music for relaxation. And we respond to touch. It's why people like to pet a dog or a cat. And so it, it's kind of cool. So I do a lot of those things um, implemented in my day. Some are, some are just walking my dog, but some are more specific um, with breathing exercises I've been doing. I do do some cold therapy when I'm motivated to do it. Um, oh, it's tough to do. Isn't oh, it? I'm about to start so a challenge. Hard. I think I'm going to do a challenge month in in February. I yeah. might do a, a nice challenge month and see if people want to get on board with me on that. But uh, it does make you feel so great. But boy, Afterwards. it takes yeah. a bit to do it. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, the good things oh. are hard, but, but there's some stuff that's not yeah. hard, just like grounding, sitting on the ground, breathing. Those things are easy. The hot, cold, those are harder. Cold mm. therapy is quite a bit mm -hmm. harder. <laughs> I know. I know. I had a uh, Dr. Ara Sapaya on and he um, he's a functional sports medicine doctor for all the professional golfers and tennis players and, and a brilliant guy and a great story in his own right. But he was saying, look, if there's one thing that I tell you all to do is to, you know, do this, the cold plunge yeah. every evening kind of thing. It's the best medicine out there, you know, and, and full submersion. I'm like, ah, oh, okay. <laughs> do I have to put my head under? <laughs> yeah. I know. He, he says you kind of do. And I was like, oh, I don't know about that. Oh. But um <laughs> I mean, you do feel so good doing it, though. It's crazy. I mean, but where you are, where you are, you could just run out and dive in the snow, couldn't you? We could, and I have, I do spend a lot more time outside. But I think, you know, you're covered in clothes and things. I, I think, you know, what I know about the cold plunges is that your cells and your skin have to really be exposed to it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's plenty cold I, where we I, are. I do. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's brilliant. When, when you're getting ready for some of these big, big events, I'm, I'm really fascinated by how these ultra endurance athletes like yourself train for them. Like for triathlon, it was always, you know, for me, hour 45, everything was pretty mm -hmm. specific, you know, and, and dialed in. You know, when you, you do the raid and they say, arrive in Hanoi and expect to paddle, track, mm. mountain bike climb, um, 
what, 400, 500 miles in forest. Mm. And that's all you're told, right? I mean, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> how do you how do you prepare for that? That that to me has always been. I'm very curious how an ultra endurance athlete trains. That that to me, do you just train all day, or I mean, I well, you know, what was, I mean, you're training different now. Yeah, I mean, I'm training differently now because it's not as multi sport what I'm doing, but I'm using a lot of the same yeah, techniques. Yeah. So triathlete, you've got a swim, bike, run. You've got a you've got a master at least technically master those sports. Mm -hmm. So even in adventure racing, you know, if you had to climb, do whatever, you've got to have the basic technical skill from that sport, you know, and I was always a better climber, paddler, runner, and a lousy cyclist, but I was okay enough cyclist to get through is it. that right? Yeah, oh, it was, that is it was my worst then, event. Novak will tell you, yeah. So and then it became a world, multiple world champion biker in your second career. I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's, that's No, awesome. <laughs> I, I kind of forget that sometimes. That people are like, wait, you mountain bike? Like, you were so bad. Um, so yeah. just go show you that, you know, everyone can improve. But you've got to have a base level of it's technical just, skill for each one. And, yeah, I was this really bad yeah. mountain biker. I cannot emphasize yeah. how bad I was. Um <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome so yeah oh it's, it's the basic technical skill you you know you do the training you do the hard work none of that is is you know rocket science it is science but it's not rocket science um but then i think the bigger part which is why not everyone was cut out for these type of expeditions is you've got to have sort of the resilience and the ability to pivot and you know as mm -hmm. things change as the terrain changes as the what's asked of you changes um, that you can adapt and have some adaptability. It's why mountaineers do really well in multi-sport. You like adventure racing, um, climbers, I, you know, it's not for everybody. <laughs> um, that's for sure. Because a lot of people like more control and they like things that are exactly as they should be. But for me, uh, you know, I'll go back to the high school running example. I hated running around the track because I knew exactly how long each lap would take. I'm always making left turns, but I loved the cross country races. And some people were the other way around. They wanted to know exactly what was going to happen and exactly what markers they needed to hit. Whereas I'm like, I don't, okay. I don't, I don't need to know that. I don't want to know that. It's more inspiring for me to be able to kind of mm. be creative, I guess, on the trail. It's funny you you mentioned adaptability when I had Mark Weber on and he said, he thinks adaptability is the biggest difference maker between the greatest sporting athletes, mm -hmm. you know, in the world compared to others. And, and we were talking about Roger Federer and his ability to adapt over sort of his entire career from playing, mm -hmm. you know, the, oh, I can't remember, Leighton Hewitts of the world to Nadal and Djokovic and how he's had to just keep adapting and reinventing himself. And, and that seems to be a word that resonates with you and the other great athletes of the world that are able to go from one sport to another and when things happen they can adapt quickly and the fact that you realize that as an athlete you know that's just a tremendous gift that you have if you can kind of go okay i'm going to go in this adventure world adapt quickly when bad things happen um, when my adventure racing career stops i'm going to adapt and i'm going to become a you know, world champion mountain biker. Yeah. I, I, sorry, I'm still, as I say that, I'm still laughing to myself. <laughs> you say you were a terrible mountain biker. You know, I, I think, think it's sink or swim. It's like, what else are you going to do? You know, you're out there. Are you going to mm -hmm. either quit and go home um, or are you going to carry on and mm. 
Yeah. I mean, you, we do have a choice to quit or to not quit. Even mm. if we don't mm. know the path forward. Mm. When, when it comes to nutrition for these longer races, is there any specific diet or again, you pretty bulletproof and, you know, yeah, this is over the years too. I used to be in adventure racing days. It used to be like Cheetos and Swedish fish. And I felt like basically we were working so hard that we deserve to eat anything uh, we wanted, um, you know, and food was more emotional, but now I realize that, you know, it wasn't really serving me. Um, so, so my nutrition, it's kind of for a multi-day or long bike expedition. Um, one, if you're traveling like on the Ho Chi Minh trail, you, you don't have a lot of choice. You, you take what is given, you know, you can't carry enough food for the month. And so then it's rice and eggs and whatever, you know, the culture there is whatever the locals are eating is what you get to eat. Um, so sometimes it's that, but if I can plan and I'm carrying my stuff, um, it's a combination between, I use goo nutrition and I, I really like, they have this drink called Roctane. Um, that is my Mm go-to. If I can't eat my stomach upset, I just can't do anything. I can always drink you know, calories, electrolytes, amino acids, um, are all in there. And so that's kind of my go-to all the time. I've got packets of those, um, sort of on standby to mix with water, but then I've also got into gotten into making, um, some of my own food, like date balls and rice cakes and things that are a little bit more, um, real food and, made mm-hmm. it home. And that's been kind of a, the last couple of years I've been making some things and making my own little trail mix sort of cookies. I have a recipe that I can share with you that a friend designed for me. Oh, please do. Yeah. Hey, let's bring it over. I'll put it on the show notes and then I can use it for my kids and cool. stuff as well. It's a combo <laughs> between real food and, and, you know, um, sort of scientifically of created food. Um, but I have gone a lot more the real food, the real food angle, um, sort of half and half right now mm, mm, mm. are you somebody that is kind of you have your, your typical wake up have your morning routine that's always a big question that seems to be asked in a lot of <laughs> is there a morning routine that you follow or is because you're doing 24-hour races you don't have one you just get up whenever you want um if if i'm at home i try to do a morning routine but like all of us I, you, there's one that is my intention when i wake up and the one that actually really happens is like <laughs> okay i'm going to journal i'm going to meditate i'm going to you know get coffee journal meditate feed the dogs you know um <laughs> And then walk the dogs and then I'll, you know, and I'm not going to pick up my phone or anything until all that happens. And then of course there's some days that happens that way. And then some days it's like, you look at your phone right away. And then that starts a spiral of, oh, I should do this work. I should do that. I'm going to look at social media. So my planned Mm -hmm. morning routine is a little different than what actually happens every day. But I do set the intention of, of trying to take a little time in the morning to be quiet and, and you know, think about my plans for the day. I do a couple little breathing things, but it doesn't happen all the time. We're not perfect. You know, none of us are. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I've started doing? I actually, rather than starting, I was fighting it for the longest time, grabbing the phone and, and especially like if a new podcast has come up and I want to make sure that, you know, it did go up at 4am on a Monday. That's kind of, well, I have to do that every Monday, but then I promote it and I want to see if people are liking it. So that happens on a Tuesday and a Wednesday. And then it's, and so I said, wait, what are you going to do? And my wife, Laura, goes to the gym at 5.36. So I, one of us has to be home for the kids. So that's me. I have to sleep in. Um, <laughs> and so I said, right, when I wake up at 6 or around that time, I'm going to spend half an hour on the phone. 
I actually do it right away. That's my thing. And but I have to on that. If somebody's written me, you know, great job on the show, Greg, or Greg, how about you do this or whatever it is, I spend that time. I have to reply. Uh-huh. So it's a purposeful time. Yeah. Then I get up and I go have my coffee, and maybe our three-year-old comes out around seven o'clock to join me. And and so I started rather than sort of fighting myself with mm. it, I was like, right, just embrace it for thirty minutes. Yeah. And then you can ground yourself later. <laughs> you can ground yourself. You can do your physical exercise. You can do all that after, because. I just felt like I was beating myself up almost um, of trying to, to do that. So I don't know. I Look, think, like you, I, I... Yeah, I don't want to interrupt, but I think it's important to listen to those rhythms of your own body. Like I tried to be a morning training athlete forever and I'm just not, you know? And oh, I, you and me both. I beat oh my myself goodness. up over it. I, that, and now that's... I'm like, I'm going to train at two o'clock. It's fine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> What's the big deal? It is deal? so funny. I trained... For 35 years, I've been getting up at 5 a.m. to go to swim squad and, mm-hmm. and 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 I'm always, I'm a morning person. I must be a morning person. And then since having kids and I'm kind of, I'm exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> so I realized I feel better training at that eight, nine o'clock, have mm. breakfast with the kids first or I just have coffee, but then I go train for an hour or whatever it is yeah. and I feel good. That's the odd. body doesn't feel very good at five <laughs> in the morning. So I like you, I've realized... Maybe I'm not a morning person. <laughs> I'm definitely not a morning person. I'd rather stay up all night in it, like in a in an expedition, than actually get up uh, early. <laughs> that's awesome. That is so great, isn't it? It's funny how we. I for me, I feel like I'm just cluing into this, and I'm almost fifty here, and I'm like, wow, I think I'm a night owl. <laughs> <laughs> Coming from a swimmer, I mean, that's you- hard if you're not a morning person. Well, you take away a big goal. I think I've been a goal-driven person my entire life. And, and right now, the goal is just to not have a dad bod, you know, with, yeah. with a one and a three-year-old. I don't, I don't want any big adventure goals right now. It's just I, I need to be here for them. But it's it, the, the focus changes and you go, okay. And this has been good for me to get to know myself a little bit. Um, you know, it, it is interesting. Now, we've talked a lot about you that's know, a super adventure worthy races goal, and, i will say that's a worthy goal to raise your children well and not have a dad bod like and i think it's important <laughs> we let our you know we have to let your goals morph and change and that's people will ask yeah. about longevity as an athlete it's like well because i've let myself change my sport my goals mm. you know whatever i've listened to myself so i think everyone mm-hmm. so your goal right now not to have a dad bod and to hang out with your kids i think that's rad <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'll take that. And I'm going to, I'm going to take that and make sure Laura hears it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, you're right though. I mean, it, I'm, I'm in a fortunate position. I get to choose the life I want a little bit right now. And, and, and that is that my, my choice is to spend it with the kids and, and you'll um, have a different, but I do look later. in the mirror. I, yeah. You'll have another absolutely. in a couple of years. It won't stay the same. Actually, maybe you're the one I should, maybe you're the one I should run it by. I, I turned 50 next year and I do want to do, something uh-huh. you know and, and it, i don't want it to be where i have to train so much that i can't see the kids mm-hmm. you know if it could be around that training hour to two hours i don't have to be a world champion either mm-hmm. i just like to try and mm-hmm. get through something so if you have any ideas of what i should do for my 50th i mean is the When's rebecca's private what item day? yeah i was gonna- <laughs> i i i'm I'm January January second, but yeah. I can do it anywhere in yeah. my fiftieth year. It doesn't matter. I mean, Rebecca's uh, private Idaho would be cool if you've never done a hundred mile gravel ride. Um, that yeah. could be pretty fun. And it, or yeah. there's a stage race what, what, format, but but yeah, I mean, I, I I used to set. I mean, I think it's great to set a goal on a decade and you'll remember it. And you know, I did that in 
twenties, thirties, forties, I did it. I didn't. And for 50, I just went camping and like hang out with my husband. Mm. I didn't really do a special thing. That's nice. (laughs) But it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, But you remember it. I do. You remember it. It's one thing you could just let it go. I've told Laura, it's, I'm going to call it the 50 days of 50. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I've got 50 days lined up and I want to do some goals on the charitable side. So perhaps we can talk about your foundation on that one. But I want to definitely do something charitable because I'm not a very, I'm not a very good at serving others. And it's something I want to work on, especially, you know, when you recognize that you have qualities of being quite selfish, and this is being a, a recent dad has taught me that I could do better at serving others. Um, and that's part, so that's part of my whole kind of moving forward. And I mm-hmm. thought, well, maybe for my 50th, there has to be a charitable component. There has to be a physical, a mental, emotional. Maybe they can all be sort of packaged together at some point. But um, yeah, maybe I'll talk to you about Beautiful it. You, you seem to have put them all together pretty well. Well, and you hit on mm. something that's really mm. cool. When you. You, when you check a few boxes for a goal, you know, it's, it's doing good for yourself. You know, you're committing physically to a goal, you're committing to, um, a cause that you believe in, you know, you're connecting with other people and maybe you're sharing it and inspiring your children when you can check and you're, and you're getting some adventure, you know, when you can check multiple boxes, instead of just, I'm going to go win this race, or I'm going to go this fast on this segment. Um, but you expand it to have sort of multi layers to the goal suddenly becomes mm. really powerful and really motivating. And then when your motivation wanes in one area, it can pull you through because of one, you know, one of the sub goals. And I think blood road, we keep coming back to it, but that's what made it so special. It wasn't just a physical expedition. Mm-hmm. You know, there were a lot of other layers to it. So as people are looking for their own goals, think about, can you check a few boxes that are important to you other than only the physical one? And I, I guarantee mm-hmm. you're going to put more energy and life and and excitement into that goal when it's when it's got a few layers like that. Mm. Tell, tell me about the, I mean, talking about serving others and other goals and charitable, tell me about Be Good and the foundation and what that's about. Yeah, I mean, that the idea of that um, was formulated when I finished Blood Road and rode the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Um, I discovered something that I had no idea and that there are, there are many, many bombs still left from the Vietnam War that that didn't detonate on impact. And so there is live ammunition, um, especially in the country of Laos. It was the most heavily bombed country in in the history in our history. Um, and they estimate that 30% of the bombs that were dropped did not go off, did not detonate correctly, and they're still there. Whoa. And so people are Whoa. still dying and uh from a war that happened 50 years ago. And I really feel my dad brought me there to show me that he had remorse about, you know, the work he was doing. And so I came away with that new knowledge of all the devastation that is still left there from, from us, um, that I needed to do something about it to clean it up. And so that's where I launched the Be Good Foundation with, um, you know, our, our sort of seed and first really big project is, was to, is to clear, um, unexploded ordnance bombs along the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Laos. And so I started the foundation with that, that first project. And our mission statement with Be Good um, is to use the bike as a catalyst for healing, empowerment, and evolution. And so mm. cleaning bombs along the Ho Chi Minh Trail is one of our projects. Rebecca's Private Idaho is a um, 
Be Good Project, and we partner with local, national, and global organizations that are improving bike access for people around the world, from Africa to Idaho, where I live, and um, People for Bikes rallies for bike lanes and transportation in the United States. So, so the the areas that I focus on with Be Good Foundation are um, clearing bombs along the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Laos, um, in my dad's name, but then also um, places to ride, access for people to ride, increasing diversity in outdoor sports through the bicycle. And so all the events that I mm-hmm. do have a component, a Be Good component to it. And it's been really exciting to take my racing, my expeditions, um, the events that I put on and add that layer of, um, mm. that be good aspect to the layer, which is, it's, it's awesome. And we've been an official nonprofit, um, just a year and a half. And so that's been an exciting journey to build that. And, and I'm really proud this year in 2020, oh, we raised, um, over $200,000 for, for chair, other groups that are doing work, um, under our mission statement. And so it was a good oh, year. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, well, congrats on all of that, and and just truly inspiring. I mean, you just you just like you were talking about before, so many of your goals all coming into one area. I just think that's really inspiring, and and you've got me thinking now. So I think we're going to be talking more beyond this show cool. um, in this next six months. So I'd I'd like to see what we can do. So I just think you know, huge congratulations. What what's next for you as we look at twenty twenty one and going forward in terms of I mean, obviously the foundation, but events and and things that you might do yourself. Yeah. Um, twofold. I've got my events that I put on that are, that are on the roster. So I have a giddy up challenge, which is an event in Everesting climbing event, um, where people can do a quarter Everest, half, three quarter full on foot, on bike, anywhere you are. And that's a big, be good fundraiser that we launched last year. And we'll Mm -hmm. do again this year. That's in um, Memorial day weekend in May. Um, and then Rebecca's private Idaho, of course, is open now. And what's been cool about that platform, typically it's been an event in Idaho. Um, but because of what we learned in 2020, we've been able to expand to a digital format. And so there, actually the event grew in 2020, even though we didn't have the in-person event and it grew to include, um, private Idaho Sun Valley, which is the in-person event, um, private Idaho remote, which is how we did it in 2020 and people execute and build a private Idaho course anywhere in the world. And we had 11 countries participate. And then we also added RPI base wow. camp, which is an eight week training program. And as you know, my goal with that was to bring the community together and give people access to my coach, to the mindfulness coaches that I have, and basically, um, give people all the tools to prepare for, for an event of their own. And so that three-tiered platform for private Idaho is open now and it's pretty exciting. I'm pretty excited about 2020 because we can all say, oh, virtual events or or that, but you know, the landscape of events has changed. And even when people can travel and get together again, um, we've realized we can be connected digitally and we can feel community even if we're not physically in the room with someone and not everyone can travel to Idaho to, to take part in private Idaho. And so by having the remote version in the base camp, we're actually empowering people to, um, 
be part of our community, even if they're not here with us. And so that has expanded the demographic. It's expanded the diversity. It's expanded, you know, and being able to offer support for more people to get outside and challenge themselves is pretty awesome. I'm pretty excited about that. So I could tell you. I well, there's, the, ad- there's, the, there's, the adapt- <laughs> there's the adaptability again. That's what I love. You know, it's like, how do we adapt to our new circumstances? And and, and there you are again. It's so really again, cool. congratulations Thank on you. that because, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's yeah. And so if you wanted to, yeah. Sorry, if you want to, if you want to build, you you so you plan your own hundred mile trail, and then you kind of, or how does it work? Virtually, yeah. If you do the remote uh, version, and I like to call it remote, not virtual, because to me, virtual means it's not real. Virtual is like an avatar on a screen, and for me, these are real rides with real people, and so I call it digital mm-hmm. um, or RPI remote. And really, the tools that we give you are, you know, how to use Garmin Connect to design a route. You know, the route profile you need to hit basically the distance and the elevation of what the course is here. And so you design something at home. So it's empowering people to explore their backyards, to connect with other friends. People will design routes and publish them. And what we saw last year, these little mini communities forming, you know, in Chicago or in wherever of people being like, Mm -hmm. oh, you're doing it. Do you want to share your route? Oh, maybe we could ride together. And so it, it was really the remote version what I loved about it is got people exploring their own backyards. It gave them the tools to actually learn how to design a route and go execute it. And then, you know, keep record of it. They put it up on a leaderboard and, you know, we had a worldwide leaderboard of people. If you hit the elevation and the distance markers, then you're on the leaderboard. And it was, it was pretty cool way to make it happen. And we had a live awards party. Um, But what I loved about it most is people, got more tools in their toolbox to go explore their own backyard. And they connected with some people in their own community that they might not have met. And they connected in a global community. Mm. So we'll do that again. Are you doing it? Yeah, we're doing it this year. It's open. Rebecca's private Idaho.com. And the training program's open as well. And so, you know, you're officially invited, which would be really fun if you add this to your, um, your list of mm-hmm. the 50 shades of 50. <laughs> that was- 50 hang on. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> the 50 days of 50. Okay, wait. <laughs> Somebody's been reading too much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'd be funny. That'd be really funny. But for me, you asked me what I'm working towards. I'm really excited. I'm doing some winter bike expeditions um, coming up here really soon. So, um, Going back to Alaska the end of February will be my first travel. Um, my last race was the Iditarod Trail Invitational in Alaska um, last March. And of course, came home to a different world. Um, and mm-hmm. so hopefully we'll go there end of February. My husband and I got our vaccinations, which is exciting. Um, but that'll be a big yeah. um, winter bike expedition, um, solo, self-supported um, on the Iditarod Trail in Alaska. And then shortly after that, um, I have plans to go to Iceland with a couple of other athletes to um, do a snow, again, a self-supported um, snow bike expedition, um, traversing the interior of, Ala- or of uh, Iceland. So wow. two big cold wow. expeditions coming up. So I am doing that cold training right now. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. My goodness. There's none of that that interests me, by the way. Yeah. That cold and oh, oh 
I just, I mean, the logistics of getting ready for some of that must be unbelievable as well, right? Yeah. I mean, or you just kind of. No. Yeah. I, I mean, I gravitated towards these. I never said, I said I would never do these winter bike expeditions because like you, I actually don't really like being cold and I'm not very good at it. I don't have good circulation. <laughs> so people ask me why. And I realized I hadn't really put myself out there in a number of years. I hadn't really challenged myself and, and done something that was very, very committing. And being in a winter expedition environment is very committing. There's there's not a lot of room for error. Mm. And I realized I needed that challenge again. And so these winter expeditions are kind of new. Um, and I went mm. to the Iditarod with, for, two years ago, first with the goal of just to actually survive with all my fingers and toes. Um, and I did that. It was messy. Um, and this will be my third year doing that. So I'm, I'm learning winter bike expeditions. I've been practicing a lot outside. I took a winter survival camp just a couple of weeks ago. Um, because yeah, the commitment is really high and there's a lot of equipment. There's a lot of logistics, even just the act of eating food is hard because your mouth is covered with a face mask and goggles and everything else. Oh man. Wow. <laughs> so it's pretty hard. Well, what kind of bike are you using a fat tire bike? Yeah. What kind of bike do you use? Yeah. You do these? Big fat tire bike and oh. there's frame bags. Oh, they're so hard to ride. Oh my goodness. It's slow. It's wow. slow. And you've got basically yeah. a hotel on wheels because you're carrying a minus 40 sleeping bag. You're carrying all of this survival gear. Um, and so the bike is quite loaded down. It's like when all the gears on it, you know, a 25 pound bike goes to about a 50 pound bike with all the equipment you have to put on it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm doing wow. a lot of strength training right now. <laughs> I bet. I was going to say that you, I mean, it, you're probably not going much quicker than walking at that point, are you? With that heavier bike, that yeah. must be so hard. I mean, on the downhills. I mean, five miles an hour average is, is, a, is a good speed for a fat bike expedition. So yeah, it's, My goodness. it's a lot yeah, different than, yeah. than uh, it's still faster to ride. I mean, if you're walking fast, you walk three miles an hour. Um, but it also takes you that kind of a bike without much survival gear. You go places you could never access, you know? And so to be able to ride, mm. you know, under the Northern lights in the middle of the Alaskan wilderness and literally wolves are howling all around you and you're alone, you know, that's, mm. that's not an easy place to access. <laughs> Is it because cross country skiing is too easy for you? that you have to do it on the bike? Actually, ski. The, so the human-powered event of the Iditarod, you can uh, ski, bike, or walk. And actually, the bikers are the faster of the three pieces of equipment really? choices. Yeah. Huh. Well, there, there, go, there you go. I, I have no <laughs> clue. Being an Australian and now living in Florida, I have zero clue about anything to do with cold or snow. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know what you're uh, I, I could... <laughs> So maybe I should join you on one of these expeditions just to slap myself in the face. Uh, that's amazing. Um, you, you, you've finally ended up in Idaho, but from what you've said, you you traveled in you know in your car for years and years. Mm -hmm. What are some of your favorite training locations, places to live, or events that you've done mm -hmm. throughout your career? Let's see. I mean, I, I sort of in the U.S. when I was sort of traveling around and living out of the car, I, I gravitated to um, the Tahoe area, which is is pretty great. Um, mm -hmm. and spent a bunch of time in, in the desert and around Moab. That's a pretty nice training ground and ultimately mm -hmm. landed here in Idaho. And, and really what kept me here of all the places I've traveled was, was, you know, the access to public land and the amount of public land and unspoiled nature that is in Idaho is, um, 
there's more public land in this state than any other state other than Alaska. And so just the terrain was really inspiring to me. And the small town that I live in just it felt very homey. It's full of endurance athletes, but also just really nice people. Um, so people in mm. place kept me here. Um, some of the places I've really loved traveling to, you know, I think if I didn't live in Australia or if I didn't live in Idaho, I'd probably live in Australia or New Zealand or Tasmania. Um, that, you know, that part of the world is, is so beautiful and such nice people. Um, it's a cool spot, but, uh, I don't know. I've, I've loved going everywhere. I loved being in the, in the Himalayas and in Tibet and Nepal. That was really special. And, Obviously, the jungles of Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia hold a special place for me. So, mm. but I will say I love where I live, and so the the lack of travel this year, you know, while I miss going to some of those places, and it's the first year I haven't gone back to Laos since Blood Road. Um, I also really like being at home, and I like where I live, and I feel lucky to be here. Mm. So, I think that's important. It's it's nice to find a place that you you're happy to be, and I think one of the things when you start traveling is you realize there's so many places in the world that you'd want to live, and it's it gets harder almost to pinpoint exactly where you do want to kind of settle down. and And I know Laura and I we, we we've lived everywhere, you know, Boulder, Victoria, Canada, uh, Noosa, Australia, all around the world, a lot in Europe, and and we still go, ah, where where should we end up? <laughs> you know, it's like we. All of these places are super special, and and it, and it kind of gets because you've experienced so much. It almost gets harder to pinpoint exactly where you do want to end up. But um, it, I mean, it, everybody's a beach house, know, a mountain house. You know, <laughs> if we could all do that, that'd be great. No, that's true. Well, Rebecca, this has been such a jo- just such a joy. Really, I. I can't wait to when we get to actually meet in person, have a beer, and maybe do a training day together, and 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 just sit and chat. I I could go on for hours listening to you you speak and your stories, and 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 you're just such an incredible human being. So it's been such a delight to have you on the show. So thank you so much for coming. Thank on. you. I look forward to being part of your challenge here, your fifty wonderful fifty, and and riding a bike with you. I do hope we get to do that together. Let's make it happen. I'm all in. I, I think this is, and look, we're accountability right now. It, this is coming out to the real world, <laughs> so everybody can keep us. Uh, this, this is happening. Awesome. So uh, now I'll put. Um, where, where's the best place for listeners to follow you? Um, all my platforms are at Rebecca Rush R U S C H. So social and LinkedIn and all those places. And then if you want to take part in in some of my events and the training programs I do, that's at Rebecca's Private Idaho. Um, but you can all find them through my name. It's pretty easy. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I'll put all of that in the show notes and timestamps and uh, in uh, on bennettendurance.com forward slash media for everybody listening. And everybody listening, thank you so much for listening and all your feedback for the show and all your suggestions. Just absolutely incredible. Thanks again, Rebecca. Just stay on the line. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Greg. That was really fun. Be good. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.